usually use notes, so I'll probably get lost trying to do that. Um, this morning, I woke up to a sacred conversation going on over my head, literally above my head. We wake up to the radio. And uh, it started with this amazing conversation among five young Muslims. You may have heard it this morning. If you haven't, I recommend looking it up. It's just beautiful. They're diverse by backgrounds. They range in age from 26 to 34. Um, talking about what it's like to be Muslim in the United States today, and some of their hope in that as well. And it was definitely a sacred conversation. That's a term that my denomination, the United Church of Christ, um, in about 2008, we, we made these sacred conversations about race, and you can download brochures about this that help you prepare for these sacred conversations. There are um, assessment tools so your congregation knows where they stand on race, and there are glossaries of terms so you can be on the same page as you talk. And, um, and this has been resurrected recently because of everything that's been happening this year. Um, we've pushed that again. Um, but there's another type of sacred conversation in art, which is those paintings that you've seen of Mary and the infant Jesus with saints standing kind of informally around, talking. And I kind of like that idea, thinking of saints more as people of faith struggling to make sense of this life we live with something holy in the middle binding us together. For me, a sacred conversation um, is one where you talk about difficult things, you make time to really listen, and you listen respectfully, you listen without being defensive, and own some of what you might have done to cause this problem. They're very important, they're very hard to have, they really are sacred moments. And I think of two that I've had in my lifetime that really changed me. One was at my seminary, which is in the south side of Chicago. Um, I sort of came of age in the same place that Barack Obama did, he was only two years older. Um, and it's, my seminary was 40% African American, mostly fueled by Trinity Church, the church that Barack Obama made, you know, scandalous, wonderful church. Um, and one young woman who was very brave, uh, who was African American, brought some of her friends, and we sat together and talked about race. And I started out thinking, I'm not racist. Heck, my ancestors were Unitarian abolitionists who fought in the Civil War. Um, but by the end of the conversation and really listening, as she kept hammering away gently, you know, you guys really are racist. Realizing her analogy was beautiful, that if you live in polluted air, you stop seeing and smelling the pollution. I carried in me years of built-up racism, part of the whole country. And it was very helpful. It started an inner conversation that has gone on for 30 years. The second sacred conversation I was part of was between an eight-year-old and his 10-year-old sister. I lived with them, so I knew them well, and they trusted me. And the sister said to the brother, Charlie, you don't always listen to me. And Charlie said, Lee, you're right. And I was about to just lie into him. What do you mean you don't listen to her? But I bit my tongue, and I listened. 
And she did too. And he said, the reason I don't listen is that you're older. And a lot of what you talk about, I don't understand, and it bores me. What I talk about, you understand, because you've lived through it already. He's a brilliant kid, by the way. He's now an adult. Um, but it was this powerful moment where they could talk about something difficult and really hear each other. So this morning, I kind of was listening in on that with these five Muslims, especially when two men talked about one of them thought ISIS was part of Islam because Islam is so diverse. And the other said, to say ISIS is part of Islam is to say that it was Christian to use the Bible to defend the slave trade, or that what the Crusaders did, burning villages, was truly Christian. But so they had this you know, interesting, powerful conversation. But the thing that really touched me, the voice that I really heard, was a young woman named Mecca, Mecca Ali, who um, is now 26 and grew up in Atlanta as part of an African-American Muslim community. She said, I never had a, a non-Muslim friend until high school, which was right after 9-11. So she had really grown up in this. And when 9-11 happened, her mother took her aside, sat her down, and said, seriously, you have to figure out how visible you want to be how you want to live as a Muslim, because it's going to get very hard for a while. And she said she was about 12, and she just cried. My mother had laid this enormous responsibility on me. How was I to choose what was important, what I stood up for, who I was, how to describe it, how to take this on? I cried and I cried. She said, but Ever since, whenever something like this has happened, whenever the shootings in Paris have happened, I ha whenever someone says something negative, when someone implies that because we're Muslim, we're animals, when people forget that we are one billion people in this world, I think of this, and I think of who I am, and it has helped me. Today is part of a series about um, voices for the voiceless, and I think of Mecca as starting this process of being a voice for a group that's fairly minority in terms of faith for us here in Cochise County. And just as uh, Don, is it Ferris? Ferris? Ron, sorry, Ron Ferris, who spoke about listening up. He's, he had some issues with um, using voice for voiceless. He said, you know, we're standing in one corner, and those fools over there obviously aren't listening like we do, right? And eventually, you had to learn to listen to what the environment is telling us. For me, as I started to interview people um, who are parts of minority groups in this county, um, I realized they don't always see themselves as voiceless or, um, you know, that they don't have any kind of power. I work with three women who are um, Jehovah's Witness. And because I have a relationship with them and they're open with me, I can ask them some questions. And so I asked, you know, what is the one thing you want people to know about Jehovah's Witness? She said, we offer real hope. Of course, their way of getting there isn't the way I would go, but they offer hope. And no religion is a religion unless it's about love. Well, yeah. Can and I said, do you feel like a minority? Do you feel like people? Do you feel invisible? And she said, "Oh no!" And she whipped out her phone, 
and she flipped through Instagram. I don't do Facebook, but I do Instagram, she says. And she had picture after picture of um, Jehovah's Witnesses throughout the world showing the ministry they were doing. Beautiful young people in Italy, um, an intergenerational family gathering in Norway. And for her, she felt connected to the whole world. And she said, we have always just been 1%. Well, I have news for her. She's not even really 1% if you look at the statistics in this county. But we're about at 8 million people, and they are used to being 1%. It's part of their tradition. They don't care, really, that they're a minority. That's who they are. For me, as part of the United Church of Christ, that you know helped found a few universities and was an important part of building up this country, um, that's a little harder. There are some real advantages to being a minority, but I'm not really used to it. And what does it mean to be a minority if you're Latter-day Saint, which is like the second biggest group? There's 7,000 in this county. There are 26,000 Catholics, about 121,000 people in all. But if you're Latter-day Saint and you're like the young woman I spent time with outside the library one week who's bisexual, and she loves her faith. She wants to be Mormon. But the safest place for her to do it is online with her community she's founded. So there's so many ways that the voiceless find to have voice. It's pretty exciting what um, the media and what internet give us access to. I found this really amazing book that I had no time to even look at all of about Muslim women online and the groups they have to talk about faith and support one another. They've been doing this so long, the first study came out in 2001 about them. So through technology, we're not feeling as cut off or as minority or as non-present. And again, what does it mean to be a minority faith? For me, who can pass as Christian, right? I go to the clergy breakfasts hosted by the hospital when I can because I can pass as Christian. But if I let them know some of my progressive beliefs, I think they wouldn't be very happy with me. And um, in the 10 years I've lived here, none of the Unitarian pastors have come with me. They have not felt safe there. They couldn't pass. There's a group that, used, that still meets in the church I served, serving all of Cochise County. It's about social service agencies. They get together to network. Well. The only other pastor who ever came besides me was Rod. So what does it mean to be a minority? Um, for me, statistics are important. It opens my eyes um, to the fact that there are very few Muslims here. Uh, there is a meeting that takes place on the post on Friday so people can pray. And I did that thing you're never supposed to do. I called my friend, my token. But really, when I asked her, how are you feeling as a Muslim in Cochise County? She said, hi, I grew up in Bisbee. I was a Catholic. All my friends love me. I feel safe. But across the county, there's an Egyptian pharmacist. You might want to talk to him. But really, there are not that many Muslims here. They don't even, on the census data, they don't even come up as a blip. There are very few Jews. Um, it was interesting for me to find that in 2010, but I think this has changed, the UCC was here, 
Baha'i was here, Unitarian Universalist was here, you know, we're all, all in the 1%, literally we're all like 1%. Um, and there are a lot of really interesting faiths here that I've met through doing hospice. So today I could have done an academic treatise about all of them, and that might have been helpful and interesting, but we'd have been here all day. And for me, um, an academic study of faith is kind of an oxymoron because faith is a whole body thing. You know, it involves all your senses, it involves community, it almost always involves food, which is why I wanted to tell that story, you know, the Hanukkah story. It was a family event, it was whole body. And how many of you have gotten to know about other faiths through a friend who took you there, right? Right, you know, thank God for my Catholic friend who took me to Mass and showed me when to kneel and genuflect, right? And I think learning about religion is a little bit like learning a language. You first immerse yourself, and you get to know the sounds. But then it's good to step back and learn the grammar, to have a place to pick, put it on. And then you go back and re-immerse yourself. With faith, I learned a lot about Catholicism just by watching the ritual. And then later I learned, oh yes, there's a lot about sacrifice, there's a lot about atonement, um, from what I had seen. So I, while I am really suspicious of always finding a token person who can teach you about something, and the import, it's very important to do your homework first and talk to them, and not expect that you know, your one gay friend is going to teach you about what it means to be gay, or what it means to be black, or um, Sometimes in this county, you do have to rely on your one Muslim friend or, um, to teach you something. And it's a really important way into faith because as human beings, as Lorraine said, we are highly evolved, highly sensitive. We pay attention to little nuances. When we hear about a whole-scale disaster, we kind of freeze up and go numb. But if we hear about an individual, and a family and a story, it sinks in. And um, I have uh, research that actually talks about that, if you want to know more. <laughs> but I can't, f I'm really bad at you know, reading to you my quotes. Um, but it's really interesting. It's called, um, if I look at the entire mass, um, I go, basically, you go numb. So I think it's really important to go in story by story. And one of the big questions I wanted us to, to look at today was, we are minority, right? What do we have to offer? I think we have a lot to offer as people who are open to other faiths. I'm assuming no one here thinks there's only one right way, and by golly, you got to, I mean, of course, our personal one is better, but. <laughs> and I thought about the fact um, uh, you know, United Church of Christ, UCC, is sometimes called Unitarians Considering Christ. Um, <laughs> I'm actually, you know, I um, have heard some really interesting progressive arguments for having a trinity, or at least a God that has multiple sides. But I can say I am a universalist considering Christ. I can say that wholly. And I assume all of us here, to some degree, are universalist and open to these other faiths. I think one of the major problems we have 
is fear. And so many people's Facebook posts have lighted up with the lovely quote from FDR, what a good source for us, who said we had n have nothing to fear but fear itself. Edwin, um, yeah, Edwin Friedman, who uh, did a lot of good work in systems theory, says that fear and anxiety can make our thinking narrow and rigid. We tend, when we are anxious, to think either or. There are two options. You know, either you're Christian or you're not, or you're bad. Um, either you're Muslim, a good Muslim, or you're a terrorist. You think in these black and white terms. But that if you can break down anxiety, you can think in you can think straight, or you can actually think in circles. You can think more creatively. I think what is happening right now in response, the negatives of what's happening in response to the shootings in Paris, um, is that tightening of fear that makes people see someone who's Sikh as a Muslim, that um, blinds our vision to understanding what the joy and beauty of what it means to be Muslim. And so I think we, as a minority voice of people who are universalist, can start to work on breaking down that anxiety. There's another lovely quote that comes from the Bible, 1 John, that says, perfect love casts out fear. It's been used as a weapon to people to say, well, if you have any fear, you obviously don't love or trust God. But I don't mean it that way. I mean that when you're afraid, one of the best antidotes is love. When I am terrified about getting up and talking in front of a group of people, if I find something I really love that I'm about to talk about, I forget that fear, right? If you're scared of a group, but then you discover something lovely and admirable and wonderful about them, doesn't it ratchet down the fear? I try to do that a little bit in a little way as a hospice chaplain. They let me do a little uh, reflection once a week. And um, boy, are they sometimes in trouble. Um, many of them are not progressive. They're lovely people, uh, but they're very different. And sometimes they get a little scared of other faiths or a little blind. And I try to gently point out the beauty of the difference. One day, uh, we did a group text to one of the nurses to wish her a happy birthday. And I wrote back and I said, um, do Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate birthdays? Um, I'm not sure that you do, but I think it's always great to celebrate you and all you do. And she wrote back and she said, we don't, but I'm turning a new decade so I could use all the prayers I could get. And because we were in communication, you know, we, I could open that up without saying, you idiots, they don't celebrate Christmas, they don't you know, I could gently open up to something different. And sometimes, just sometimes, I can point them to the beauty of how a different faith handles the body. Um, sometimes we've had to wait a lot longer for a body to be taken out of a house because of a tradition that believes this body is transiting to a new level of consciousness. Blows their, most of our minds because this is not part of their language but I try to help them understand why this is different, why this is beautiful. How do we learn about other faiths? I think it's in part by hearing the stories, by walking with people, by asking questions,
by talking with people who trust us to tell us more. Um, that's, that's one way. But what happens when we admire another faith? Can we take that wholesale into us? As a child, the reason I, I kept talking about my background is to explain not that I have a PhD in this and not that I am well trained in this, but I've had a lifetime of experience in other faiths. As a child, I would go to Russian Orthodox services and was blown away by the beauty. Then I did what is the hardest thing for any Foreign Service kid to do. I moved back to the United States. It's really hard to come home again. And I moved to this tiny town in Massachusetts where my mother grew up, and I was pinko and commie and weird and different, and it was hard. And one summer, my family and I traveled through Asia. My father was in Vietnam. He was going to meet us in Australia. And we traveled through Asia to get there to meet the grandmother I had rarely saw, the aunt and first cousins I'd never met. And I was nine. And I saw these amazing Buddhist um, temples and statues and beautiful offerings left for other people. And when we got back, we moved to Washington, D.C., not a small town in Massachusetts, to a church that quickly had me studying other faiths, that took me to an Islamic center, that took me to the Hindu temple up the street. And at each place, I would find something beautiful. I loved that one of the pillars of Islam is charity. I loved that in the Hindu temple, you could be Christian and Hindu. They were very welcoming. And my church, I love this too about my church. It never said to me, this is why they are bad and being Christian is good. Never ever. They trusted that we'd make up our own minds about what, meant to, what faith meant to us, no matter where, no matter how. And years later, I got to do that with a new generation of children in that church. So this has been part of my life. But how do you take from another faith? It's not something you can neatly do. Years ago, I horrified my um, preaching professor because I said, you know, envy is a good thing. It can be good. And he looked at me. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. That's against one of them, you know? Um, and I said, I really love the way this young, beautiful African-American woman preaches. She would get out from behind the pulpit she would swivel her hips, and she and well, you know, I have a Puritan background. Um, I couldn't do that. But we agreed, well, I could walk. You know, I could actually talk to people. I could leave the pulpit. So by envy, I took part of what was hers, digested it, made it mine. I couldn't just take it. One of the most beautiful things, um, I believe, about another faith is the ability of the Amish and Mennonites to forgive. Um, and you know, you'll remember the media attention after the shooting at the Amish school and how that community could turn around to the widow of the man who did the shooting and feed him and, and feed her and embrace her family. And they could do it so quickly. And there were these huge debates about, well, you can't forgive quickly. You can't move that fast, which personally I agree with. For me, but they have a centuries of tradition of forgiving, centuries of having worked this into their culture, centuries of putting the youth in the front of any grieving process and talking with them and showing them how you are to grieve and 
how you are to forgive, centuries of preparation to do that, that we, I'm assuming you also, don't have. So it's a tricky thing. We can't suddenly become forgivers overnight. But I think we can admire and learn from these points from other faiths. And as we do that and as we share that, I think we ratchet down that fear, that anxiety, and help other people to see more, to see more clearly. Um, there was a lovely moment at the end where two other voices talking today amongst themselves, those five Muslims, said something really lovely. Um, One of them was a young man named Colin. And I, had, I couldn't figure out why he had such an Anglo name. Grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. His family had no faith. He converted to Islam because he liked the ritual. He's married to a Bangladeshi woman. He says, whether well, I'm not with her, I'm treated totally differently. And he uses that. So if a stranger talks to him on the airplane about Islam, He'll talk with them and talk with them. And finally, at the end, he'll drop, well, you know, I'm Muslim too. Because they're much more open to him if he doesn't say that at the beginning. Um, he uses his ability to pass as a majority faith to help other people understand the minority. And I think that's one thing we can do, you know, as being part of the 1% and the 1%. We can use that to talk gently with other people about the beauty of what's around us. And there was a lovely young woman named Ziba. She was 34. She grew up in Ohio. Her parents were from India. Her childhood mosque in Ohio was set on fire a few years ago. She said it caused about a million dollars worth of damage. The arsonist had a gun, and thank God no one was in the building, I'm using her words, at the time. But a million dollars of destruction just devastated her community. She said the local community, non-Muslims, opened their arms and opened their buildings so that Sunday school for the kids could take place and prayers could take place and sermons could take place in the local high school. And she has seen with every horrible act of vandalism and discrimination, she's always found a counter. There's always a group in the larger community that shows kindness. She says that's an amazing thing, and I think there's hope in that. So we who are a minority group can do both those things. We can talk lovingly, nudge people to see the beauty and other faiths. And we can do those incredible acts of generosity whenever they're needed. We just have to stay awake to the possibilities of that.